Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to The Preacher's Corner. I'm Pastor Jay, and live today, uh, we're going to be back in John. We're going to be kicking up chapter number 3, verse number 22 to 36 to finish off the chapter today. Before we dive into chapter 4 with the great meeting of the woman at the well and and lots of great stuff that's happening over there in chapter 4, but this is a pretty important place here in, at the end of chapter number 3. Most people, when they consider Gen, or, or John chapter number 3, they think about the conversation with Nicodemus. They think about the most famous verse in all of the Bible, as in John 3.16. But rarely do they come to this conversation and actually pay much attention to it that happens here at the end of John chapter 3. So that's exactly what we're going to focus on today. So, as we turn to the Lord in prayer, we're going to ask for a blessing upon us as we receive of His Word, and then we're going to dive in. Father, we are grateful for everything that You have done for us thus far this week. We're thankful, Lord, for the Word of God and how it enriches our lives to give us understanding, to help us see this world, to see the issues of our day, to be able to comprehend and know the challenges, Lord, and to face them in Christ, we thank you for such a blessing as to be saved and ask that you will give us wisdom that the Word of God may dwell in us and live through us to help others come to know how to be saved. God bless it. We'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, folks, let's get into this with a reading of the Word of God. Beginning in verse number 22. The scripture says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Aenon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe or does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him or remains on him. 
you've got a situation now all the way back up in John chapter number three, we, we see that conversation at the, at the evening time when Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and he talks to him and he, and he discovers this concept of new birth that Jesus teaches about it. But of course, before then, you've got to go back to John chapter number one. You've got to have that initial meeting between John and Jesus there in verse number 29 and following. The baptism of Jesus, the conversation that takes place, actually be discovered in rather Matthew chapter number three or Luke chapter number three in those areas where a great conversation would be be had between John and Jesus as concerning John saying, I have need to be baptized of you, and Jesus saying, No, we've got to we've got to do this thing the way that God has has purposed for us to do this so that we can fulfill all of the righteousness, in other words, all of the requirement that would be established for the law, we've got to fulfill it, John. So you've got to do your part. I've got to do my part. <clears throat> well, once Jesus has been established as a rabbi, established in his ministry, which this mikvah or this baptism that Jesus had gone through with John, there's the point of it is that it is a certification of his ministry but not a certification under the Pharisaical order. Again, remember that in, in John baptizing Jesus, that he is not baptized unto a Pharisaical line, but unto the priesthood, unto a Sadduceical line. For John was the son of Zechariah, and Zechariah was one of the priesthood serving in the temple, and so we see that Jesus is, is in his nature of the flesh connected to, through his baptism, that line that goes back to Aaron. Now, that is as being under the law. However, Jesus is also recognized, as it would show us in Hebrews chapter number 7, <clears throat> that Jesus is recognized in the order of Melchizedek, and you remember Melchizedek as we go back to Genesis, back to, to the time of Abraham, and we see that the deliverance that Abraham and his 300 uh, servants went and got Lot and, and, and the rest of the women and brought them out of, of the, the captivity they were in. Melchizedek meets with him and he provides a tenth of all that he had received and Melchizedek blesses him. Well, this Melchizedek, known as the king of Salem, and he is also recognized in, in Jesus in a connection there, which is before the law, before the priesthood that comes from Aaron. So Jesus is in, in his earthly estate connected to the law in order to fulfill all the law. Now, keep in mind this also, not to abolish the law. Jesus didn't abolish the law, that it is something that is no longer to be observed. He didn't do that at all. But Jesus fulfilled the law in so much that we no longer have to uh, strive to work and keep the law in order to please God. Uh, and in fact, when the law was given unto Moses, the, 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 as much as the people would try to keep it, it, it was established as Galatians chapter number 3, about verse number 20 down to verse number 25. Well, the whole of Galatians 3 will tell you that, that the law was established to be a schoolmaster. In other words, 
you were never going to be able to keep it in its entirety because you were never going to be able to understand it perfectly. And so that the law was simply there for the lawless, for those when they transgressed, that it would be understood, that it would be known that they have transgressed so that they could get their heart right and get their lives corrected by the law, uh, their heart right with God and their lives corrected by the law. Let me straighten that out. <clears throat> and so that the law of God is not something that that is established for us in this modern time, even in the old days, uh, to be kept in order to make one godly or to make one right with God for the purpose of being able to be saved but that the law is is still to this day our schoolmaster. The law raises itself up when we become lawless. The law raises itself up when we sin so that we can see that we have sinned and recognize our need for repentance and, and to help us. The law is a help to be able to draw us back to Christ. And so the law itself is a really good thing that Jesus didn't abolish. He simply fulfilled it because there's no possible way that you or I or any other of mankind born unto the corruption of this world, uh, there's no possible way that we could have been able to satisfy that law. Only Jesus could truly satisfy the the law in its entirety. For only Jesus is is a sinless man in in the flesh. Only Jesus was possible for for this satisfaction to be done, and so he suffered the the ultimate satisfaction of the law in the death, as it would say also in Galatians three that cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree, and of course that's coming from back in Deuteronomy. And so that we understand that Jesus satisfied the, the totality of that suffering. He satisfied the totality of the price, of the penalty that the law is applied to us. And so that when we receive Christ and we receive that forgiveness, that forgiveness is perfect. And, and it, it separates us from the penalty of the law. Now, it does not separate us from the observance of the law, for indeed, <clears throat> the law is something that is good to observe. As we observe God's law, then we will be a people that are separated from the rest of this world, right? I mean, one of the defining factors of a separation between uh, the lost and the saved is the obedience that the saved will give to the Word of God as, as the Word of God instructs them. So that as we are faithful unto the word of God, that, that we will be living a different kind of life. We will be speaking a different kind of language. We will be, we will be hoping in a different light of hope. Everything about us, as we are faithful to God's word, will be different because we are observant of God's law. We're observant of God's word. And his word is his law. Keep that in mind. So Jesus didn't abolish himself as the word, as the law. Jesus fulfilled this point.
And that's what we find from Matthew chapter 3 is, is the greatest example of that beginning about verse number uh, 12 and ending somewhere near verse number 18 or in, at the end of the chapter because that's at the point of the baptism of Jesus. And so it comes down in John chapter number 3 here and, and that after Jesus has been baptized, his, his ministry is now certified according to the law. And so that his ministry is certified under the work of, of John, that, that it is a certification that is above and beyond that which would be of the Pharisaical order. No offense to the Pharisees, but the Sadducees are the established priesthood that God used, has made. So it goes down and it shows that Jesus, while he was dwelling there in the Judean countryside, and of course the Judean countryside is the uh, land of Judah, the southern kingdom, Jerusalem being a part of that, also Bethlehem being a part of the, the, the tribe of Judah, the land that would be there. So as Jesus was, was with his disciples in the countryside, they began to baptize those who were pointed by John to Jesus. So people who started following Jesus were being baptized. And the reason why is because that baptism that John was doing is a certification, as much a certification as it is in a, as an identity. And so that those that began to follow Jesus, even though they had already been baptized by John, those who began to follow Jesus were receiving of the baptism of Jesus's primary disciples, who would have been Andrew, uh, Andrew and Peter, James, John, those gents, <clears throat> Nathaniel. So those who were starting to follow Jesus would receive of the baptism of Jesus, and so that they would be a, a group of disciples that would be recognized unto Jesus as their Messiah, as their rabbi at this point. Uh, and, and thus they would be recognized as followers of Jesus, not followers of John. So this baptism, as much as we make it out to be, and I mean, they, it, there's several different denominations they make it out to be, the, the one and done uh, thing, like if you've been baptized by us, you can receive no other baptism because there's it's, it's a holy and sacred and all of this other stuff. And of course, in several denominations, now, baptism would be considered as a as a merit of grace that would be applied to your salvation. And so if you receive somebody else's baptism, it would mean that you lost your salvation because you would no longer be recognized as being baptized by us. But in that very statement, in that very belief, you're acknowledging that the concept of baptism as being a part of a person's identity. For instance, if you if you were asked, have you been baptized? And you were to say, well, yes, I've been baptized. And that person would say, well, in what way were you baptized? You say, well, I was immersed. Well, immediately you've ruled out uh, two thirds of religion at that point, because most of the major or mainstream religious groups, things like Anglicans and Episcopalians and Lutherans and Catholics and Presbyterians and and some Methodist groups even, that they all practice sprinkling. As it was, it's not even sprinkling. It's just dipping your thumb in, in, in a water that you call holy and making the sign of a cross on a forehead. But, but that's baptism. 
And then in, in some Pentecostal circles, they practice what is called pouring, which I think is pretty interesting because you're standing in a pool full of water, but they take a pitcher and they pour uh, water on your head and that signifies baptism. So if you say immersion, you're really kind of limiting yourself down to Baptist. And there are some uh, Methodist groups and, and uh, that, that may practice immersion and some Pentecostal fellowships that may practice immersion and some independent works uh, that, that uh, are out there, reformed works and different things of that nature that, that would practice immersion, some non-denominational groups. But mainly when you're talking immersion, immediately people are thinking Baptist because that's just a known reality of the Baptist. We immerse. And <clears throat> the interesting reason is that according to the scriptures, the majority of the scriptures that, that I study as concerning baptism, none of them reveal uh, a, a sprinkling method. None of them even reveal a pouring method. They all talk about going down. They all talk about coming up out of the water. And, and needless to say, Jesus's teachings, such as it would be in Colossians chapter number two and verse number 12, the whole concept of of baptism aside from the identity is a recognition of a death, the burial, and the resurrection of your sin nature unto a, a new life. And so being buried with him in baptism, as Colossians 2.12 specifically states, that we are buried with him in baptism, that we are also risen with him through faith in the operation of God. And so we get the idea Behind this baptism is a recognition of the burial. It takes a lot of smearing dirt on people to get them buried, but I'm just saying. So we come to this scenario where, where Jesus is out there with his disciples, having been certified at the ministry through John's baptism, and is now baptizing his own disciples. Well, of course, it's the disciples of Jesus, not necessarily Jesus himself. Depends on your translation that you're reading. But the old King James specifically states that it was not Jesus that was baptizing, but his disciples. Very important point there. But in verse 23, it says, John also was baptizing near Aenon, near Salim. Now, John's ministry didn't stop simply because Jesus came. John's ministry was for the whole purpose of revealing Messiah to the world as when Jesus came. But John, in his mission that is given him by God, until he stops breathing, he's going to carry on doing what the Lord has given him to do. And we would want John to carry on his ministry because it's a ministry of repentance. Essentially, John would be ultimately an evangelist. He is drawing people unto repentance, and that's what his baptism was called to begin with is the baptism of repentance. And hence, he says, you come to me and I'm baptizing you with water, but there's one who's going to come after me who was preferred before me, whose shoes latching. I'm not even worthy to unloose. And he's the one that's going to come and, and, and truly perform uh, this baptism of fire. Now, of course, we we understand that baptism of fire in, in the connection to what happens in Acts chapter number 2 when the tongues of fire come down and lay upon the disciples in the upper room. Essentially, they were, they were immersed by the presence of the Holy Spirit in that upper room as they began to speak and, and everyone heard in their own language during that period of Acts 2. That doesn't mean that that's when they received the Holy Spirit because 40 days before then, actually 48 days 
before then, Jesus had breathed upon those disciples specifically and, and told them, receive the Holy Ghost. So this is a situation where you're having a certification of the church in Acts chapter number two. This is not a receiving of the Spirit, but an empowering of a people by the Spirit to proclaim the gospel of Christ, as, as is the case. But that's the same thing that baptism is meant for, is to bring forth the recognition of an identity with Christ, thereby empowering that believer to go live in, in a life that is consistent with Christ, having acknowledged all of the sin nature and the old things as being passed away and, and, and living for Christ in this new life that he has established in that believer through the Holy Spirit. So, the, the Acts chapter 2 event is a recognition of the, of the congregation there being immersed in, in the power of God through the Holy Spirit to proclaim the message of Christ to the whole world, which they pretty much did. And so you come down and it says that John was also baptizing in verse number 23 because, interesting point, because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized well water was plentiful there well if i'm practicing a method of sprinkling all i need is a cup <laughs> that's 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 all i need to to practice the the method of of baptizing is because the only thing i'm going to do to those who would come confessing is dip my finger in a cup and rub a little sign of a cross on their forehead of course no one no one during the time of John or during the life of Jesus would ever even think to do the symbol of a cross on somebody's forehead because the cross was considered the most heinous of ways to die by the worst of criminals that existed in that time. The cross was not a symbol of glory like it is today with people running around with cross earrings and a cross necklace and and getting cross tattoos put on there and they're thinking, oh, I'm so cool, I got a cross. That was a symbol of condemnation. It was a symbol of the worst kind of death you could possibly suffer during the period of Roman times. A cross was was reserved for the most wicked of, of human beings that, that deserved the worst death you could possibly imagine outside of Christ. And and so this would not have been the case anyways, but for the purpose of illustration, I mean, you the, the water being plentiful wouldn't matter. You would need enough water to fill a cup for a hundred people or for a thousand people uh, because all you're doing is just simply dipping your finger in this, this water and smearing it on somebody's forehead. Congratulations, you're baptized. Now, I sound a little bit <clears throat> probably cynical about that or that I'm being sarcastic about it and picking on it and in part I got to confess that I am it makes absolutely no sense according to the word of God is understanding that for even a thousand years before Jesus that the method of immersion and the and baptism was something that was commonplace it is something that the Jews would would do uh, through temple ritual and and purposes of purification all the time. This isn't some new concept that John just out of the blue started doing. 
This is something that has been established for a great length of time in Judaism, and and the mikvah or the baptismal pool, like the pool of Siloam, like the pool of Bethesda, and those places where Jesus was doing amazing healings. These were places where people would go forth and go down into the steps and get into the water, and they would be baptized. This is this is the very concept of of, of baptism that the, that the people understood. So so where uh, Constantine and the councils of of the the Roman Church, where they come up with this idea of sprinkling. Of course, they're they're trying to mimic the the way in which Moses consecrated the the law and consecrated the people in Exodus 20 at the giving of the law where he sprinkled the people and he sprinkled the book. Of course, it was with blood, not water. And it was with a batch of hyssop that he would sprinkle the people and and, and the books and all. But this is the concept is that it's an obedience to the law, so to speak. But nevertheless, it, it actually makes no sense to the scriptures because in scriptures, the, the method of baptism that is taught, the method of baptism that is revealed throughout uh, the history of the of the Jews, of the history of the people, has been through the mikvahs, the immersion baptism. And so, if you if you really wanted to be obedient to God's word and follow His word in point, you would seek out uh, baptism through immersion. And so it comes down. And he says that um, because water was plentiful there in verse number 23, and people were coming and being baptized. Now, for John had not yet been put in prison. That's kind of a very important point because soon he will be put in prison and his ministry will be over. Keeping in mind that, that God establishes the ministry of man. God establishes the timeline of the ministry of man. God establishes the lifeline of the ministry of man. And so the days of your life, the days of my life, they're all numbered. The purpose of your life, the purpose of my life is to be lived out by, by God's leadership. And the length of that purpose will be established by God. So everything is done by God. All you and I have to do is be faithful. That's it. We, we don't have to figure anything out. We don't have to try and, and make anything happen. We don't have to. There is so much about our lives that we try to do that we don't have to do because God has already done it. God has already established it. God has a perfect timing for everything. We just simply need to be faithful to God, to be a in prayer, a person prepared through the communication we have with God to to answer his call, to take the steps when God says step, to stand when God says sit still, to to be faithful to what the, the Lord what the Lord desires for our lives. That's that's all we got to do is be faithful. And God literally has already taken care of all the rest. Well, that sure does make the ministry a whole lot sweeter, doesn't it? And that's the truth. So we get this discussion that gets started up here in verse number 25 of John 3 between some of John's disciples and a Jew. Now, it's kind of important to understand that that the majority of John's disciples are Jews, but 
the Bible is revealing a distinction between the, the Jewish culture and that which has begun to follow John, John's disciples. And the reason why is because there is a separation that has begun through the ministry of John as not being not being under the 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 religion or the work of Judaism anymore. Now, what I'm not saying is that when these people came to John to be baptized, that their identity as being Jewish was done away with. That's not what I'm saying at all. In the same vein as we would see in Acts chapter 15, that huge argument that was between Barnabas, and, or Paul, I should say, principally, it was Paul, but I think Barnabas was with him at the time. And of course, Titus and Timothy was, was accompanying him to Jerusalem. And that the there were Judaizers that were entering into the churches and were perverting the gospel of those churches as to require Gentiles to have to receive of circumcision in order to be able to be close to God and, and to be a full-fledged believer, and that, that they were implementing much of the Jewish customs laws uh, on the Gentiles for them to be considered believers. And so this great debate uh, existed in Acts chapter number 15 to the point where it was decided by uh, James, uh, the, the book of James and the brother of Jesus. It was decided by James, who was the pastor of that church, by the way. It was not decided by Peter, who everybody in the Catholic world clings to as being the first pope. By the way, he didn't have any say in the, in the uh, events of the first great debate of the, of the first church that was in existence there in Jerusalem. It was James, not Peter. So if you build your house upon the rock of Peter, you failed. Because to begin with, the the established original church that happened in Jerusalem after the the Acts chapter 2 event of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the disciples and the empowerment of the message going out of the people and 3,000 souls coming together unto salvation in that day, that was all under James. <laughs> so... That kind of burst the bubble of Peter being the first established pope anyways, but I digress. The, the very point is that in this great debate that raged in Acts 15, it was established that the Gentiles are at liberty to maintain their identity as being Gentiles. In other words, they didn't have to be circumcised. They didn't have to do many of the customs of the Jews, they were, they were free to remain Gentile. So that when, when you see this moment happening with these, these disciples of John, it's not that they dissolved or lost their Jewishness. And of course, the first church was majoritively Jewish anyway, but that they acknowledged the a freedom they have in their Messiah as being separated from the dead work, no offense intended to those who are listening who are of Orthodox Judaism, but the scripture reveals that that Orthodoxy was a dead work in the fact that it did not receive its Messiah. And 
the scriptures are clear that Jesus is the Messiah. And so coming to Jesus does not eliminate you as being a Jew. Jesus isn't some Gentile manifestation. Jesus is the very Jewish Messiah that was sent from God through the lineage of David in connection to Joseph. Jesus came uh, to to save you as as a part of you as the Jewish culture and so that the Gentiles were welcomed in Christ because the love of God is extended to all but the reality is is that these disciples of John didn't lose their Jewishness because they came to faith in, in, in repentance and, and through the message of John these disciples were still very much Jewish but their recognition comes as disciples of John instead of through the orthodox manner of Judaism. So that's kind of important to realize. And so there was a, a discussion. Of course, I'm sure that equals an argument. Never is there a discussion between religions that doesn't end up as an argument uh, between some of John's disciples and a Jew. <laughs> so, those who are under the doctrine of repentance and remission of sins through the work of, of John and the, those who follow the orthodoxy of Judaism. And 26 says they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, uh, which is interesting that they would call John Rabbi, being as that he, of course, is of the priesthood, and you don't find any of the priesthood being called rabbis, but that you find the Pharisaical order being called rabbis. So this word simply means teacher, or as a word it would mean master. So it's interesting to me that they would call him this, being as that his father Zechariah, and that most of them believed him to be Messiah to begin with. Now they've de-escalated their stand on John greatly. <laughs> so they said, Rabbi, he was with you across the Jordan. Uh, this is talking about Jesus. He who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness. Now, that's huge right there in itself. Because remember, Jesus said, I am not the Christ. Remember, they asked him plainly over in John chapter number two, are you the Messiah? And John said, no, I'm not the Messiah. That this, this Jesus, of course, being as that they would be speaking in, in Aramaic or as it would be in Hebrew, that he would say, this Yeshua who is Hamashiach, the Messiah, it is he who has come. So, so John was testifying of Jesus, and the scripture says, whom you bore witness. Well, at that very statement, what did they miss? What did they not understand? Their argument is, he who is with you across the Jordan, whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Well, isn't that what the witness being born was meant to be? Isn't that the purpose of what John even told everyone in chapter number two, what his ministry, what his mission was, is to reveal the, the very Messiah, the very Son of God, the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world? Wasn't that the whole purpose to begin with? And so the, these, these people are arguing with each other over the fact that Jesus has now gone off and begun his own ministry aside from John and that that Jesus is now baptizing more people than John is baptizing, but that was the whole mission. That was the whole purpose to begin with. And so that 
John would say a person cannot receive, verse 27, very important, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You you have not received anything in your life unless it was that which was blessed of God. You know, you you have not given anything lest it be prompted by God. We, we have not received. This, this ministry cannot receive anything lest God uh, allows it to receive anything. And you cannot receive from the Word of God lest the, the Holy Spirit opens your ears to receive of the Word of God. There are so many people that sit in a church every week and receive nothing. There are so many church hoppers that, that show up for a time and then vanish away that they, are, that, that, that they are receiving nothing. And the reason why they're receiving nothing is because God is not allowing them to receive because they have not desired to receive to begin with. And, and you receive absolutely nothing nothing unless God allows it. The house you have, the cars you drive, the the furniture you have, the everything that you possess, the cattle that you own, the the other livestock, the 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 job that you work, the the monies you receive from the employment you have, all of this, everything about your life, everything is that those gifts that come from God, everything, for you have received absolutely not one thing, lest is granted by God in heaven. We really don't have a proper thinking about God, do we? Because we take so much of our lives, not only for granted, but for a thinking that it was us who had made it come to pass. That we would believe that it was our skill that, that, that got us that promotion, that it was our ability, that it was our knowledge and our wisdom and our training and our abilities that, that made us so advanced in society above those others that are just rabble in the poverty over there. And we say, well, why is this person still in poverty? Why don't they just better themselves so that they can do more? But, oh, Christian, did you ever stop for one second to think that that life is in poverty for that is what God has ordained that life to be and that in that poverty he has given you given you so much that you through his love could make provision for they who are trapped in that poverty and so that you can be God's tool of blessing for that life and you think, well, I ain't going to give anything to them because if they're not willing to earn it or work for it or do this or that or the other, then they don't deserve anything. And, and that's a God call. That's like something that you decided in a God frame of mind without even realizing or without even thinking as to what that person's situation is what that person's situation has always been. You just think that they do nothing and think that they are nothing and so that they won't accomplish anything. And why in the world should I facilitate their doing nothing when you don't even know them? You don't even know their life. You don't even know their struggles. You just assume. 
And so you became God for a moment, excluding God from your life to make those decisions when nothing you have is anything that you have done to be able to elevate yourself to any level. Doesn't the scripture say that God raises kings up and that God lowers kings down? Was it not the same for you or for me that he would raise us up until our britches just got too big for us and that he would lower us down to be able to get us back to the ministry or back to the reality of life? So if you're going to chew on verse number 27, please think about this. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Salvation. You can't receive salvation through the works that you have done. You can't receive salvation through the, the, the idea of merits that you have accomplished or the idea of, of goodness that you believe yourself to be. You can't receive salvation unless it is given to you from God. And by the way, that ties into, of course, Romans chapter number 6, verse number 23, that tells the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Understanding a gift is something that is given to be received. You, you don't get anything. You don't get Jesus lest you receive it from God. You don't get it. And John comes down to continue his point. He says in verse 28 of John 3, he says, you bear you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. And so John said, y'all know that I'm not the Christ. And in fact, that would go to say that John would say that you know that he is the Christ because I testified of him. And so he comes down in verse number 29. And, and, and I love this statement. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The one who has the bride. Well, Right here, the very first reference to the point of the church, to the disciples of Jesus, or to the congregation of Jesus as being recognized as a bride, right? So the one who has a bride is the bridegroom. Now, John has already said, I'm not the bridegroom, that's Jesus. And he says the friend of the bridegroom, and the reason why he said the friend of the bridegroom is because, remember, Jesus never baptized John. So John was never identified in Jesus. Though John was the one who identified Jesus as Messiah, remember John said, I have need to be baptized of you. And Jesus said, no. So John does not have the ability to be in the bride. John's not going to be a part of the bride. And understanding that this is where John is excluded from the new covenant per se as being the last servant of God of the old covenant. And so that John was not brought into the congregation of Jesus or brought into uh, what is considered the church as being recognized the bride. So John says, I am the friend of the bridegroom. And indeed, John is the friend of the bridegroom. It was necessary that God... Remember, the Holy Spirit was in John while he was in the mother's womb, recognizing Jesus between Elizabeth and, and Mary. But, but that, that John is indeed as close a person to, to Jesus as ordained by God as ever you could be. And he is the friend of the bridegroom, but he is not a part of the bride. 
He says, the friend of the bridegroom stands and hears the bridegroom and rejoices greatly at his voice. And, and John did all of that. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Now, he must increase. Now, Jesus must increase. But John, he acknowledges, I've got to decrease. And he knows that his time is limited. He knows that his time is short because his ministry is fulfilled. It's the same thing as, as, as Simeon and Anna back at the birth of Jesus when Simeon was, was told by God in his time of prayer that he would not suffer death until he saw the salvation of God. And Simeon held him up and said, Now my eyes have seen the salvation of God, so let this servant depart in peace. He knew his time was limited. John knows his time is limited too because he has seen the fulfillment of God's purpose in his life. And so it, the acknowledge of Jesus in, in uh, verse 31 down to, to 35, granted, but to close out this day, 36, you've got to get 36. The scripture says in verse number 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Now, this, this belief is in connection to what the next part of this, this verse, this statement, this belief is in a direct connection to obedience. A person could say they believe anything, but in their obedience, are they, are they faithful to what they believe or are they just using lip service? Are they using words? A lot of people say that they believe in Jesus. But in their daily activities, in the way that they talk, in the way that they, 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 they do their daily life, they, they act as though God isn't even a part of their life or that God doesn't even exist. And so that with their words, they would say that they believe, but with their, their actions, with their life, they show a lack of obedience to what God's word says, which in that lack of obedience is the lack of belief. Now, look at what the scripture reveals. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But look at past that semicolon. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. This is, this is a neat portion of the translation because it, it connects belief with obedience. And, and that is absolutely true. And, and those things that you believe, indeed, you are obedient to them. You believed that your daddy was going to whip your butt if you didn't do the, the, the chores around the house. You did the chores. You were obedient to the chores. You believed the drill sergeant was going to bury you under the barracks if you did not snap to and, and operate. So you snapped to and you operated because you obeyed. Elsewise, you knew you were going to get buried. Belief and obedience are connected inseparably as one. And so to say that you believe, but in much of your ways, your life, your, your speech, your, your activities, you are rejecting or rebelling against God. Your belief is in vain and you are lost. You need to be saved. You're, you've lied to yourself. You've lied to the world. You've lied to God. But a person whose life exhibits the word of God, maybe certainly not perfectly, but that, that person desires to be honorable before their father in heaven and lives and exhibits the word of God is a person who truly is saved and the Holy Spirit is working through them because their belief is manifested in their obedience. Belief and obedience, inseparable, cannot be separated.
And whoever believes in the Son has eternal life and is obedient to the Son. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. For he's never been separated from his his sin. He's never been separated from, from evil. He has remained rebellious before God. Rebellion and obedience directly defines the believer. Plain and simple. So when the scripture says, search out your own salvation with fear and trembling over in Hebrews, and, and Jesus would say uh, to the, the Pharisees, you search the scriptures for in them you believe you have eternal life and they are they which testify of me, that you would discover that, that the reality of, of our belief is, is wholly contained in the revelation of our obedience to God's command. Good stuff. Father, we thank you, asking your blessing be upon us as we consider these things in Jesus' name this day. Amen. All right, guys, God bless you, keep you, and cause his face to shine upon you. And I shall catch you tomorrow for the beginning of John chapter number four. What a thrill it is to go through the Gospels, isn't it? At least the Gospel of John. <laughs> so y'all take care. We'll see you.